Right now, many companies are rethinking how they connect with their customers online. This makes the role of developers who build these digital experiences more important than ever. But a lot of business leaders don't know how to unlock their dev team's full potential. In Ask Your Developer, Twilio CEO Jeff Lawson shows you how. To get your copy of the book, head to askyourdeveloper.com. Coming up today, the long-term psychological impact of surviving ICU with COVID-19 and how Slack can actually fix workplace communications. You're listening to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Natasha Banal. Hello. Matt Burgess. Hello. And Matt Reynolds. Hello. This was the week when Roblox founder and chief executive David Bazuski got very rich indeed. The gaming platform, which debuted on Wall Street this week, rose in value by 60% during its first day of trading, reaching $47 billion. Bajitsky himself netted $4.6 billion. This was also the week when digital creations from artist Beeple sold for more than $60 million. The auction, which included 5,000 pieces of digital art, is the first time non-fungible token art has been sold at an auction. And finally, this was the week when Matt Burgess wrote about how the Home Office is surveilling everything we do online. For the last two years, police and internet companies across the UK have been quietly building and testing surveillance technology that could log and store the web browsing of every single person in the country. Great scoop, Matt Burgess, genuinely. And this all goes back to the Snoopers Charter, which was passed in 2016. It didn't go away. And this is one of the most controversial elements of it. Yeah, and it all revolves around the idea of internet connection records, which are pieces of data that are can be captured by internet service providers uh, and they're about the sort of what you do online. So it can be uh, the domains you visit, the apps you use, things like that are all sort of required by this piece of law to be captured by internet service providers. And what we sort of found out is that the first orders for this data to be retained um, have actually been issued over the last couple of years and the systems that are being built uh, to, to actually capture this data are starting to be tested. And there's a huge amount of secrecy around this. The reporting that you've done over the last couple of weeks has effectively been knocking on a lot of doors and being told to go away. But this is, for a Western democracy, potentially one of the most draconian pieces of surveillance legislation in the world. And it's happening right under our noses. And there's very little transparency around it, right? It is. And over the last couple of years or several years, really, since this law was first passed, there's been sort of very little information about sort of how it has uh, been impacted and enacted, really, because um, there's just so little that's talked about around this space. Like the law itself generally uh, was a big sweeping change to uh, sort of the surveillance and investigation techniques that police and law enforcement bodies can use. But overall, this one provision was uh, deemed to be very sort of controversial and really could see a lot of data collected about people and still a few years later we don't actually know much about how or even if it's really being used it's a fascinating story so fascinating that we're going to talk about it no more on this podcast and instead natasha we're going to be talking about putting mayonnaise on sea turtles what did you learn this week (laughs) 
Yeah, so I did a bit of homework uh, this week. Last time I was on the podcast, just to give a bit of context, I spoke about how Israeli rescuers discovered that they could save turtles that were drowning in tar by feeding them mayonnaise. Now, James, at the time you asked me how they found out mayonnaise was the way to go. And I thought, I basically made up a story, that maybe they had some mayonnaise to hand and decided to just give it a go and see what happened. But I was actually wrong. So this week I've learned that mayonnaise is basically a miracle condiment. And I'll explain it here in just a very kind of short, non-scientific way. So mayonnaise is a uniform mixture of two substances that don't really blend that well together normally, which is oil and water. So when you apply it, or feed it to a turtle in this case, the oily bit of mayonnaise mixes with the tar and makes it less viscous, and the watery part dilutes the oil to draw it out and make it less sticky. So this technique has so long been used on human beings that it was quite easy to apply to turtles. And it's been used for human beings when they have hot tar burns on their skin. So it's tasty and good for getting rid of disgusting substances. So a very worthy condiment, in my opinion. And we'll have much more from Natasha on condiments at the end of the show. Something to stick around for. Matt Reynolds, what did you learn this week? I learned that the largest single living organism on the planet is just one mushroom. More specifically, it's a single specimen of the honey mushroom, which is growing in Malheur National Forest in Oregon, and it covers around 3.7 square miles, although most of it is underground. Its nickname is the humongous fungus, and it's thought to be at least 2,500 years old. The humongous fungus is just a fantastic name. If someone hasn't written a book about the humongous fungus called the humongous fungus, then I don't know what we're doing here. Interestingly enough, there are actually two humongous funguses and there's a little bit of competition. <laughs> but funnily enough, one of those funguses is much, much smaller. So it really should just seed its crown to the Oregon fungus because it's not. It's the quite big fungus at, at best. And if you want to show your appreciation to some fun guys, you can leave the Wired UK podcast a uh, review on any of your favourite podcast platforms. A five-star review, or any review really, (laughs) but preferably a five-star review, will help our podcast get more visibility and more people listening and enjoying these terrible puns. And if that terrible pun doesn't make you leave a one-star review, I don't know what will. But please do leave a nice review. Our first story this week... now. It's been a year that we've been in this pandemic and we've heard an awful lot about what it's like surviving COVID-19. But for people who end up in intensive care, surviving COVID-19 isn't the end of the disease. So this week, Matt Reynolds, we've been looking at the long-term psychological impacts of a really devastating disease. But even once people have recovered, they're still living with its shadow. That's right. Our reporter, Will Moffat, has been looking into the lasting impact that a stay on an intensive care unit can have on people with severe COVID-19. And one of these people that he spoke to was someone called Paul Henderson, who's a man from Scotland who fell ill in late March 2020. Now, Paul doesn't remember an awful lot of his stay in ICU, but what he does remember is arriving at Edinburgh's Western General Hospital around two in the afternoon and nine hours later being placed on a life support machine. His next memory was waking up 30 days later and being told they'd been placed in a medically induced coma for that whole stretch of time. Now, as you might expect from someone that was in ICU with severe COVID-19, Paul had a really, really 
rough time there. He almost died on several occasions. His organs failed, leaving him strapped to dialysis machine. He had a perforated colon. He had eight blood transfusions and had to be mechanically ventilated in order to breathe. But what continues to haunt him to this day and for a long time afterwards are the delusions that he had while he was sedated. Um, you know, just as a few examples, Paul said that at one point he thought that his wife had left him because she was having an affair. And then he thought, or she shot herself in a wood. Actually, one of the first things that he did when he woke up was ring his wife and ask her if she was having an affair and saying, I thought you were dead. Some of these other delusions that he had, he imagined drowning alongside his brother, who had died 14 years earlier, in fact. And another time he saw a close friend being kidnapped and shot in the back of the head. So some really tough and, you know, lifelike delusions he was having while he was in this coma. It's really, really harrowing. And <clears throat> Paul has recovered, but he's one of a number of people who are now struggling with the really traumatic nature of being in an intensive care unit while being treated for COVID-19. This isn't an isolated incident. So up to 80% of intensive care patients who need mechanical ventilation can suffer from delirium. And this isn't because of the virus. It's because of the very, very aggressive way we have to treat it that these patients suffer from this long-lasting mental health damage. That's absolutely right. It's worth saying that for anyone, a stay in the ICU is going to be really traumatic. And you do see delirium rates some, sometimes up to, you know, or above 50% across all kinds of conditions. But there's something quite unique going on with coronavirus. And as you said, it's because we've got all these different interventions that are being done in a time of panic, in a time where you have social isolation, in a time where people are rushed off their feet. It all adds together to a particularly distressing time in the ICU. And one of the main reasons that... Um, you see these cases of delirium is that patients with COVID-19 are often laid on their stomachs to help them breathe more easily. It's something called proning. It's been used since the beginning of the pandemic, really, as a way to ease people's breathing. But because this position is uncomfortable to maintain, people need strong doses of sedatives to keep them sedated. Benzodiazepines, which are this kind of broad category of sedatives, can be associated with more severe forms of delirium. But ICU staff that are working during during a pandemic don't always have the luxury of picking and choosing their sedatives so it's a case of we need something that will keep people relaxed and asleep long enough so that we can ventilate them and they can stay safe and it means they reach for sometimes sedatives that might also have this effect on delirium and Will spoke to um, someone a rehabilitation psychologist based in the University of Chicago someone called Abigail Hardin and she basically said COVID-19 patients tend to need more medications to keep them comfortable and sedated so they can maintain that prone positioning and it's for that reason that the severity of the delirium that she's seeing in people that are coming out of the ICU of COVID-19 seems worse in, than in the past of other types of serious illnesses. And it's not just the level of sedation here right any stay in intensive care is going to be incredibly distressing for people that come out the other side yes they have their lives but they might have really long periods where they're unsure of what was happening. Were it not a pandemic, everyone wouldn't be in PPE. Family and friends might have been able to come in. So not only are they going through a stay in intensive care during a pandemic, they're incredibly socially isolated and confused. So when they come out the other side, they don't necessarily have a clue what's been going on. And because of the nature of COVID-19, 
the the necessity for mechanical ventilation for so many of these patients means that they go through a really really upsetting sensation of basically drowning yeah it's really quite horrible and this is one of the biggest sources of distress that patients describe it's the breathlessness and hunger for air that comes when people's breathing is replaced or assisted by mechanical ventilators some people as you said james describe this experience of being mechanically ventilated as resembling drowning or suffocation one doctor that our reporter talked to described it like this they said imagine you've just run up a flight of 20 or so stairs um or sorry 20 flights of stairs as fast as possible leaving you completely breathless but now instead of gulping in air as your you know naturally your body wants to do you're only allowed to take tiny breaths one at a time that's essentially what mechanical ventilation is doing it's restraining the size of the breath in order to protect the lungs but the desire to breathe is still there which leaves people with this feeling of a loss of control and they can't get enough air into their lungs and this actually relates to the problem I was describing earlier with sedatives because part of the problem is that people who are sedated might be experiencing this air hunger more than we realize despite the perception by many doctors and nurses that drugs used to paralyze patients alleviate this air hunger there's some suggestions that that's not always the case so there's one test conducted on a popular sedative called propofol although the people in this study weren't knocked out by it but they were given it enough that it it basically reduced their pain responses or would would reduce their pain responses they found that although the drug affected the volunteers memory of distressing images it didn't lessen the impact that those images had on the parts of the brain that govern emotions so there's this worrying sense that these people can still experience these things and experience these negative stressful painful sensations at least emotionally painful sensations while they're happening even if later on they don't actually Actually remember them so this this idea that actually we think these people are unresponsive but they might be responding in quite a distressing way even though we can't tell and it's it's so difficult to relate to these individual situations in the midst of a pandemic when everything seems like numbers the total number of people infected the total number of deaths the total number of people that have recovered but the the crisis that we're going to face off the back of this one of many is there's going to be so many people that went through this incredibly distressing situation so they're not just feeling like they're suffocating on and off for potentially weeks at a time they're suffocating while delirious and trapped effectively so you can still what you're saying is you can still experience that trauma, but you can't respond to it. And it's almost impossible to imagine what going through that must be like. And we're going to be faced with many thousands of people dealing with the mental scarring caused by that experience. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said earlier, this is a horrible thing to go through even in the best circumstances, in the best hospital where you have as many staff as possible to attend to you. But they aren't really the circumstances that we've had during this pandemic. I'm sure people have seen reports that whereas ICU nurses would usually be one nurse per patient, we saw it would be much you know, extended, maybe one nurse between three patients or even more than that. And then perhaps listeners remember those really scary images from early in the pandemic where you saw doctors in full PPE, sometimes with face masks, don't, almost don't look human imagine if you're in that situation you wake up or you've just been admitted you're not sure n- none of your family are there no one you know is there people are treating you you're not sure what for you can't see their faces it's just an incredibly scary experience you think about it and like you said james it's an incredibly scary experience that has been ex- that has happened to a lot of people at the same time and that's really the worry that a lot of the 
the doctors and nurses that our reporter spoke to just saying, well, the sheer scale of this means that so many people have had this shared, terrifying experience. And it's quite a, a coming burden for the health system, really. A word that comes up quite regularly in issues around PTSD with incredibly traumatic injuries is control. So you might um, have someone who's in a really, really bad car crash. You might have someone that has a very, very distressing and prolonged labour. The way that your mind and your body responds to that often is to is to block it out. So you end up with this patch of your history that you're unable to reconcile. You, you do not know what happened during that period of time. And for COVID patients who survive ICU, very often there's very little to fill in the blanks. So they, they don't really feel that they can regain that control over their own lives. Yeah, absolutely. That's another really big part of that. And our reporter, Will, spoke to a woman called Honor Petiglio, who was admitted to the ICU at Edinburgh Royal Infirmary in early May. And since returning home, she's actually found that her life is completely changed, in large part to what you just said, in large part because of that lack of control she had over that period of her life in ICU. So she's experienced confusion and brain fog, is unable to recall conversations with her son and other family members. She finds that her personality has changed. She was once passive and diplomatic, and now she gets quite angry and irritable more quickly. And part of this frustration comes from her amnesia. Despite piecing together her time in hospital through medical records and talking to staff, the blank spaces in her memory have made connecting to her experience much, much harder than it would be if these people had a, a way to connect with that, either from being awake or being able to say, well, you know, maybe they would have their loved one there and their loved one could say, well, I was with you when this happened or this happened. There's nothing of that. These people don't have a connection to their experiences. And it's very difficult to find a way often to connect with those experiences. To go back to the example of maybe someone who's involved in a very serious road traffic accident, a stay in ICU for them would be accompanied by really, really detailed medical notes. That's not the case for ICU COVID-19 patients. And it's not just the lack of notes, is it? It's the stuff that we were talking about earlier on. It's the sedation. It's the hospital staff in PPE. So many ICU patients who are surviving and coming back into the community have these really traumatic blank space in their life and they can't reconcile that trauma. Absolutely. And a big problem here is just the scale of the problem we're facing. At the peak of the pandemic in January 2021, there was 4,000 people at any one time in ICU in the UK. So lots and lots of people that might be experiencing these problems and might be having these problems you know, as we're speaking. It's a particularly worrying prospect in the UK, given a significant proportion of COVID-19 survivors might already be suffering from PTSD. Now, we only have a bit of a sense of what's going on here, but research conducted by Imperial College London and the University of Southampton found that a third of 13,000 former COVID-19 patients that filled in an online survey had symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. One of the problems is, is there's not a whole bunch of provision for post-ICU care. So statistics on this are pretty hard to find, but there seem to be only 45 specialist psychologists who are registered members of the NHS Psychologists in Critical Care UK unit. And these are people, psychologists, whose job is to support people in critical care and as they come out of critical care. And a survey of 163 healthcare organisations in the UK that was published in September estimates that around half of patients discharged from critical care units will not get support from charity groups 
or follow-up clinics. And it's a sim- similar picture in the UK, in the US, sorry. I spoke earlier about the rehabilitation psychologist at the University of Chicago, Abigail Hardin, and she said, you know, in the US, most people who are hospitalized with COVID-19 will never see a psychologist, either during the hospitalization or afterwards. And it means they'll never get any of these interventions that we can do to try and help with delirium, which means they'll be delirious for longer. It also means they might go undiagnosed and have undiagnosed cases of PTSD or depression or anxiety or whatever else comes up as a result. So there's this real problem that because we just don't have the scale to provide this support for patients as they come out of ICU, that we've got all kinds of people that are going to come out with undiagnosed conditions that could go on to haunt them for the next few months, the next few years, and have a real significant impact on their well-being. And if you don't intervene early enough, I mean, we've seen this with the pandemic itself, then the problem gets an awful lot more complicated. At the beginning of the pandemic, the UK didn't have an effective test and trace system in place. And what started off as a small outbreak very, very quickly um, snowballed into a pandemic that has taken many thousands of lives unnecessarily. So this is almost the pandemic that follows the pandemic. We've heard a lot of comparisons that are maybe slightly over the top between the pandemic and a war. But in terms of what it's been like on the medical front line, that is the case. The scale of death and suffering, maybe the last time we face a situation like this as a society with needing to rehabilitate people who have been through such a traumatic experience was the Second World War. And there are some really important lessons to learn from historical mistakes at rehabilitating veterans into society. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is with this pandemic is that we know this is affecting people. We know they're going to come out of ICU with with delirium, with all kinds of issues associated with what they experienced in there. So we can expect this to be coming and hopefully we can be ready. And the good thing is, is that PTSD is treatable. If you can intervene early, you can shorten the disease, you can lessen its severity, you can help people recover. So we do have the knowledge that we need to try and help people and make sure these don't become lasting issues in their life. We just need to make sure they're deployed at scale and that people are getting access to the help that they need. And this brings me back to Paul's story right from the beginning that we were talking talking about at the beginning of the section. So he does still have flashbacks and memories, even to this day, he's still thinking about his time in ICU. But when our reporter Will spoke to him, you know, he's much more optimistic. He's focusing more on the future. He's been working with a psychiatrist and says he's managing things much better. And his main goal is to get his fitness back so he can go walking with his son. So I think Paul's story really shows that we should really take the experience that people have in ICU really seriously. But if you give people the help that they need and you intervene early and you give them the support as soon as they've come out of the ICU, it doesn't have to be a life sentence. It doesn't have to be a burden they carry forever. There is a, a path out of this. And if you or anyone you know has been affected by the issues we discussed today in the UK, you can get in touch with ICU Steps, which is a charity that supports the survivors of critical illnesses and their relatives. You can head to icusteps.org to find out more. For our second story this week, we're looking at Slack. For a year, it's been our replacement for the office. Natasha, how's that gone? Not very well, Matt. So about a year ago today, we were sent home from the office um, because of the pandemic and a lot of us haven't been back since. So all of our office chatter, as well as the work that we do on a day-to-day basis, has transferred over to workplace messaging services like Slack. So Slack has become the de facto digital office for a lot of workers in the UK and around the world. And it kind of sucks. 
it's not so much that Slack is broken, it's that office workers don't really know how to use it properly. There's a huge gap between what Slack developers intended the app to be used for and how we're using it in real life. So at the start of the pandemic, Slack recorded the number of messages spiking as well as the time that we spent on it. So on average, we all spent about two hours on Slack every day in March, up for about an hour, 15 minutes before the pandemic. And as people have grown less enthused by Zooms and they've had Zoom fatigue, I expect usage has shot up even further. We use Slack at Wired, not just for work, but also as a way to keep in touch with everyone and it replaces office chatter. Um, Since the pandemic started, I can tell you we have created emojis of our own faces Uh, James Temperton has his face grafted onto a parrot that we use quite often. We use spoons, the spoon emoji, in a non-ironic fashion. We send each other anonymous compliments every day on this thing called disco, which is a huge waste of time. Um, But we do a lot of work on there. It has become totally time-consuming, though, and I really shudder to think how many messages I send on it every single day. Part of the joy or horror, depending on your perspective, of using Slack uh, means that everything is tracked. So there is a record of everything that we've sent and the messages are all logged, um, which is great for when you want to go back and find something. But in other ways, it does sort of like really indicate how the sort of shift in working has happened um and one of the one of the features on here when we were talking about this story uh, came up was the sort of analytics feature so um i've dived into some of our messages for the last uh, year or so and broadly across the company uh, the wider company conde nast there was this dramatic uptick in messages being sent on slack at the start of the pandemic so in 20 February 2020 there were roughly sort of 140 to 160,000 messages being sent a day on our Slack uh, not just not just our team but sort of the wider company and then it shot up to around sort of uh, 230,000 plus per day uh, ever since uh, ever since then essentially there's a bit of a dip around Christmas and a bit of a dip around summer probably when people were taking holidays but Slack has very much become the sort of de facto way of communicating um, and I can go a little bit more granular um, to tell you all how many messages you've sent personally on Slack over the last 30 days. Um, James, I'm going to go first with you. Uh, you have sent 6,059 messages in the last 30 days. Uh, around half of them have been in pub or in channels and half and the other half have been about have been direct messages. Matt Reynolds, uh, you come inferred out of us four, uh, just to mess the order up. Uh, you've sent 2,800 <laughs> messages in the last 30 days days uh natasha you've sent 3200 and i've sent 1500 messages and uh most of them are uh sort of generally across the board people are sending a lot of direct messages to people i would like to apologize profusely for sending you all 6059 messages in the last 25 no in the last 30 days yeah that's slightly better you, no it most isn't. of them are probably emojis right i mean I suppose so. I mean, I, significant. I, 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 all I can do is apologise. I, I, I was going to try and come up with some witty comment, but I just, I just feel ashamed. Um, anyway, you were saying, Matt Burgess. Yeah, it is a huge amount. And to be honest, that's part of the point of why we're talking about this. We're using Slack a lot and we're using it in different ways, depending on the work we're doing and the people that we're talking to. Um, and uh, really the big question out of this is we're using it a lot but are we using it well and are we using it properly 
No, not really. So you're right, just like our company and just like our team, a lot of people have seen a massive spike in their workplace messaging, but a lot of that time is not spent very well. So um, on on average, people check uh, their workplace messaging and their emails once every minute. Um, And it's got to the point where we have about an hour a day of productive time without checking emails or messages. But this hour a day isn't one block of time. It's spread across the entire day um, and it's probably getting worse and worse as we rely on these systems more. And that's that's the fundamental problem here that, that, you know, a lot of companies have decided to install Slack, Microsoft Teams, you know, Facebook Workplace, and they haven't really bothered to train anyone or give them any guidance on how to use it. And so it's kind of been a bit of a free for all sort of wild west of, you know, figure it out by yourself and, and, you know, sort out the way you want to communicate with your team. And that's had kind of disastrous consequences. I spoke to a few people in other companies to see, so we don't just have our example, how they've been using uh, things like Slack or Microsoft Teams. And the results have been really, really interesting. So um, there's one man that I spoke to that works for a consultancy in London who said that his company rolled out Microsoft Teams during the pandemic and that no one is using it. Uh, There was no training, no nothing, no one really knew what it was about. So it's sort of floating there in the ether and no one really pays attention to it. This morning, he messaged me to say that he's in an enforced training session to start using Microsoft Teams. And he was saying saying to me, it's just all a bit much, really, that no one really knows what's going on or what the point of it is. So that's that's not gone very well. On the other end of the spectrum, though, I spoke to another person who works for a communications agency in Manchester, and he was saying that they use Slack for pretty much everything from project management to football banter to quizzes on Fridays and that he checks his Slack all the time throughout the day to talk to his team and update them on projects. So you've got some people who love this this kind of tech, some people who hate it, but most of us are sort of stuck in the middle, faced with the constant notifications and pings and status updates. Um, Harvard Business Review did this major study on worker burnout at the end of last year, which was brilliant. And I, I recommend you check it out, uh, all the listeners in the podcast, because people told researchers that if they tried to spend time away from their computers, their notifications would blow up, that people didn't respect their time schedules, that the information overload was completely relentless. They basically couldn't get away from the noise. This is one of the problems really here. The technology itself, uh, Slack, Teams, etc., they work in the way that it's meant to be, uh, meant to operate. It's the way that people use Slack, which is the problem. Um, so it is partly a people problem and a work problem. And part of the situation and the, and the, the situation that we found ourselves in with the pandemic has sort of exacerbated this. And Slack knows about this. This isn't obviously something that, um, is being unaware of so it pretty much admitted this to you this week in the piece that we're talking about here Natasha uh, when uh, Noah Vice uh, Slack's vice president of product told you that his bosses probably don't know that he turned off uh, his Slack mobile notifications when he was working from home during the pandemic um, with the justification being that he's either at his computer working or not working there's only two states and there's no dashing to to and from meetings where you might have to pick up messages in between when you're traveling or anything like that and overall Slack's financials are very healthy. The company's not going away at any point. Um, But going forward, there's more pressure coming. So with particularly with the coronavirus situation, the future of work is pretty much changing with people returning to the office soon. We've seen a lot of demand and a lot of interest in people working in a hybrid way or so at home for a few days a week in the office for a few days a week. Um, And really Slack's coming 
going to have a bit of a tricky time going forward and has got to come up with some uh, different ways to sort of maybe operate and keep working. But also there are companies that are trying to challenge its dominance in this space. That's right. And throughout this last year, I mean, Slack has, has very much been put to the test. It's been a trial by fire. And really, if you think about it, it's kind of failed. And, and Slack Slack knows this, you know, it, it knows that there's a huge gap between what the tech was intended to do and what people are using it for. That's why it has a help center and it's trying to train people on how to use it. Basically, the, the solution, and I spoke to Noah, who was really charming, and he said, look, you know, if you know how to use Slack, it does work really well. All you have to do is, you know, use the personalized... Um, um, updates in your statuses so that people know that they shouldn't bother you. You can put uh, snoozes on your notifications. You can tell people when you're out of the office. You can mute channels so that you can get away from it all. But a lot of people not only don't know how to do that, but as you were saying, Matt, they can't do that because the culture of their business just doesn't allow that to happen. And Slack is running out of time to address this kind of thing because when we return to the office, we're looking at potential, as you were saying, hybrid environments. Some people will be sitting next to you in the office and some people will still be working from home home and messaging won't go away but the way that we use it will change so people will want a system that isn't constantly pinging at them while they're having in real life conversations they don't want to have to be on zoom the entire time while they're also sitting in the office with half of their team all these all the ways that that we're going to be using these messaging apps are going to change really dramatically and what's happening at the moment is that we've got this sort of deadline we might be back in the office by the summer and a lot of people at Slack and a lot of people at their competitors know this. So there's lots of people kind of crawling out of the woodworks, not just your classic um, rivals of Slack like Microsoft Teams or Facebook Workplace or Google, but also quite unexpected people who are saying, we've seen what's failed on Slack, we can sort this out for you. So there's there's a load of people sort of trying to get in on the action at the moment. You've got companies like Quill from San Francisco, which came out of Stealth last month and advertises itself as a simpler, more mindful version of Slack. Twist, which is based in Barcelona, is another one. Basically, on its website, it calls Slack a complete mess. Um, it, all these all these different companies are coming out saying, you know, Slack hasn't been fit for purpose for you. We can offer you an alternative. And the timing of this is is difficult for for Slack because it means that it has a sort of deadline to convince people that it's working to fix some of these mistakes that that aren't necessarily due to the platform but just due to people using it wrong Um, and and it's that sort of gap that that a lot of these competitors are kind of banking on so that when we do go back to our asynchronous way of working and our hybrid working which is very different from what we had before the pandemic they'll be able to say we were so much better than Slack and this is why you should come with us. Yeah, it definitely is a time where there could be some change and sort of re-evaluation of how companies and people individually are using Slack. Um, to Matt and James, to bring you both in here, um, James is our most prolific Slack user on the team. What do you think it's going to mean either going back to the office part-time or not in terms of working with Slack and uh, and how, how is this going to change? Okay, so just, just to go back for a second, not to obsess over this. So 6,000 messages in 25 days, yeah? <laughs> so that's, that's 240 that's right, messages yeah. a day or about 34 messages for every working hour. So that's a message every other minute for every working day over the last month. And that's not including emails and phone calls and zooms and everything else that you you've been doing as well so i must be uh, absolutely yeah, you've been, you've insufferable in uh yes i've been you in touch that's a very out, polite though. way of putting it no james yes. you spread it out like we don't all get messages from you all the time 
So, I sub- you know. Right. Um, but, but back back to your question, Matt Burgess. I think something that we saw a little bit in the UK over the summer with the um, very ill-advised "come back to the office, the virus has gone away" campaign that the the government um, launched slash threatened people with was the concerns of missing out. So decisions happening in the office of communication being much easier amongst people in senior positions who are attending in-person meetings. And how do you make that work with a hybrid model? So I think once we're back in the office, Slack will be used an awful lot less for communication. It will be used an awful lot more for I need this thing done or where's this thing. But for communication and decisions and forward planning, we are going to end up back on Zoom and then it will be Zoom's responsibility to or or using Teams for calls. It will be Zoom's responsibility to make that hybrid of there are some people in a meeting room, there are some people at home, but everyone needs to join the conversation. And it can't be that the person who's dialing in from their home because they need to work remotely is just sort of forgotten about in the corner. Um, and because their Internet connection is crap, no one listens to what they're saying. That That's the big problem. Um, is that you don't want to feel like you're missing out if you're working from home. And it will be appalling if when half of us are back in the office and half of us are working remotely, potentially, if everyone's sitting in the office talking to everyone remotely on Slack, that's just not going to work. Yeah, well, that's that's one of the things that the Slack team is working on at the moment. So Noah was talking to me about the fact that people are tired of zoom and they're tired of meetings and that's really their problem they're not so much tired of using slack it's just you know there's so much information out there and there's so many sort of team meetings that you go to where you've got 20 30 people just staring at you for about an hour and you're going by rote basically one person updates another person updates and so on and so forth and no one feels fulfilled in those meetings and so he was saying we don't necessarily have to fix slack we have to train people to use slack so that they're using it more like you said james as a way to kind of fulfill the work proposition rather than replace everyone's conversation and and use it just for that purpose but also they were saying things like well you know we know that we can replace these specific useless meetings that we all have to go to by making it asynchronous so he's been working on this product which sounds like it, it could either go really really well or really really badly where basically you have a slack channel and you upload a video of yourself giving your update and if if like you know matt reynolds happens to be in italy he'll upload his in when it's convenient to him and so on and so forth and so it's sort of this channel of asynchronous working which they believe is is going to be a lot better than sitting in an hour-long meeting now obviously the the catch of that is that you're going to have to be checking slack all the time to see everyone's bitty little um, videos so i'm sure that that, that could go abysmally wrong <laughs> if put in the wrong hands but it's still it's still a solution right so you're not in a situation where you go oh well, i'm going to be sitting in the office on zoom which i could do at home and all my colleagues who are in the Zoom, half of them are also in the office, which how does that even work if you're in an open plan place with no walls? It just doesn't make sense. That new product sounds quite intriguing, but it also sounds like it might be the Slack equivalent of voice memos. And therefore, we'll have a couple of really dedicated power users or a lot of really dedicated power users, but everyone else is just terrified and writes, um, you know, in text as a response. I think it's it's a really good point, what you were saying, Natasha, that part of these problems are cultural problems and their problems with our work life as opposed to technological problems that necessarily need a technological fix. At the end of the day, if you're 
constantly dragged into meetings in which you shouldn't really be or are a bit pointless, then that's a problem with your office culture or a problem with your boss or someone else in your team. For instance, as you say, I think a lot of meetings really could just be an email. If you need to update everyone, do an email circular every Monday or or whatever, rather than doing a meeting which absorbs everyone's time simultaneously. So I think there's there's that thing as well. And also, if perhaps if you've got a problem with being distracted or you know, loads of conversations happening on. One of the problems with Slack is if all 100 members of your team or of your organisation are in Slack, you find yourself being drawn into conversations you wouldn't necessarily. You wouldn't necessarily go to the kitchen and just see who's there to have a conversation or pull into that conversation. So it's a little bit perhaps of exercising that same mentality of saying, oh, well, I just check it every 25 minutes or, you know, I just check it at a break in my work as opposed to thinking, well, because of this new format, I have to be pulled into every conversation. So I think part of these problems can be answered by cultural tweaks or tweaks in how you approach working as well. I really enjoy it where we very subtly slag off the way that Wired works <laughs> on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it's getting more and more obvious as time goes on. Excellent insights. There was one meeting where one of our colleagues just shouted, look at me. <laughs> it, was just, it was because everyone was sort of passively maybe typing or like you know, checking their emails while the, while the meeting was going on and he was just fed up. It was one of those moments where it was sort of, um, it was like the network, right? Where it was like breaking the fourth wall and we all sort of looked really shocked. Um, but yeah, I can imagine there's going to be a lot more meetings like that if we're not careful. It's been a long year, but we we all still like each other very much. Podcast at wired.co.uk. I imagine everyone that's listening to this podcast has spent far too much of the past year on Slack or Teams or Facebook Workplace or whatever tool that you use. Has your company come up with good solutions, best practices, tried to improve workplace culture to make sure that people aren't constantly DMing you on Slack like I do to check how you're doing and where things are at? Um, what are the solutions to this problem, particularly as we move to a hybrid workplace? Now, uh, time for the highlight of your show, of uh, your show, sure, our show, the show you are <laughs> listening to. The podcast inbox has been bursting at the seams with emails about Natasha's favourite condiments. So, Natasha, just to remind people, a couple of weeks ago, um, the podcast audience was tasked with listing your three favourite <laughs> condiments we don't really know why we're doing this but here we go we know yeah. one of them is burger sauce but yeah that's what... right so matt reynolds gets yeah. that very good well done matt reynolds what <laughs> what are the other two this is what we've got to try and work out so natasha andy and Stuart yes. have both guessed yeah. squirty guacamole sauce mm-hmm. is that right that's not right no no and also and, and... guacamole is not a sauce in my book in the Nor should it of senses. ever be squirty. Um, Stuart, also on the subject of avocado-based foodstuffs, um, remembers, and this is from a long time ago, us yeah. talking about um, growing an avocado from a stone. He says he doesn't mm-hmm. remember who mentioned it, but can can he have an update? So this was Vicky, right? Um, we checked with. That's right. We check with Vicky and Vicky uh, reassures us that um, one of her avocado stones got knocked on the floor and died and the other one just gave up and died of its own accord. So there's there's your avocado stone update. Um, <laughs> all right, uh, back to the condiments. Burton has some guesses too. Is one of your condiments butter? Again, butter is not, unfortunately, a condiment. It is, in fact, a spread. Um, 
I hate, I hate to be a purist, but it is, um, yeah, I had to look all these up just in case I was wrong, but no, butter counts as spreads. So much like, um, Marmite, it would be a spread. I had to think of a spread really quickly, another spread. Thinking on your feet. What about honey? Is it honey? Is it honey? Honey is both a sauce and a condiment, but it is not on my list of favorite condiments. So no, it's not. Why? Why? People, people give me more credit than what I deserve, frankly. My fourth favorite condiment is mayonnaise. After all, that should have given them a sort of inkling as to how basic I am with my condiment adoration. Because please, please put us out of our misery. Um, in, right. in order of preference, yeah. Natasha, your favorite condiment in the world is ketchup <laughs> okay well that's fine it's isn't ketchup. it yeah, yeah that's a good it's one ketchup. and i'm so surprised no one guessed it because it's really it's the most basic of the condiments it is but quite if, I had, basic. if i was put in a desert island i would be there with a bottle of ketchup if i had to choose a condiment as part of the desert Makes island sense. experience as your favorite mm. condiment it would be ketchup yeah. uh your second favorite condiment so this is this is the one i'm most ashamed of um, and bear in mind, I've got like burger sauce on there as my third favorite condiment. Um, it's the, you know, the medium peri peri sauce. <laughs> oh God. I just love it. I love it so much. I don't love it as much as ketchup because it's not as versatile, but yeah, I could probably just have it as is really. Not to get into a whole argument about how something that is called medium peri peri sauce can be, sauce can be a condiment. I know. We'll, we'll, it mm. is a condiment though. I don't make the rules. Is it? Is it though? It is. Mm. It is. Uh, let's leave that there. Um, this isn't, after all, a show just about condiments. Please do get in touch with any of the stories that we talked about on the show this week or any of the other stories that we talked about recently. Please do not email us again about Natasha's favourite condiments. That's enough. Yeah, Podcast. do it. I say do it. <laughs> don't, don't. don't listen to James. <laughs> let's listen, to, listen to James. He sends 6,000 Slack <laughs> messages a month. Podcast at wired.co.uk if you'd like to get in touch with the show. We really do love hearing from you that's it for this week we'll be back again same time next week have a good one bye-bye bye bye, bye. bye. bye.